I want you to imagine that you're about 10 years old. And your father brings home a special gift that someone gave to him. It's a beautiful, shiny crystal globe. And the globe spins around on its base, and it plays one of his favorite songs. Well, your dad proudly shows you how it works. He grabs it by the base, he slowly winds it counterclockwise, and then releases it and and lets it play clockwise uh, with this beautiful music. And he tells you, you can... You can touch it, but don't wind it up, because you might break it. About a week later, while your dad is at work, can you see what's coming? You get the globe, you bring it to your room, and even though you heard your dad say, don't wind it up, you decide to wind it up anyway. You give it a little twist, let it play. It only plays about five seconds, not very satisfying. So you give it another twist, and then another, and another, and another, and snap, it breaks. The globe separates from the base. You try desperately to put the pieces back together. You force the pieces together. You try to tape them. You try to glue them. Nothing works. Finally, you're staring at this globe, this broken globe, and you realize that it is broken beyond any repair you can do. So what do you do? You go into the closet in your bedroom, shut the door, and hide. It's Adam and Eve and Genesis 3 all over again. Adam and Eve. I believe that Adam and Eve were real people. The first two people God created. They were the father and the mother of the human race. I believe that they were representatives of the entire human race in the sense that We don't just read Genesis 3 as a a, a true but kind of distant and hazy story. No, every day of our lives, you and I are living Genesis 3. It's a story that started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The opening words of the Bible, God's revelation to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And... After God completed his work of creation, he surveyed it, and he pronounced that it was very good. It was perfect. The first two chapters of Genesis show us over and over again that God is good, just as we have sung in this worship service. God is good. Uh, So good that, you know, it ought to make us be like the kids in Willy Wonka, you know, running through a candy heaven and saying, ooh, look at this, look at that, taste this, taste that. God is good. Amen? God is good. In Genesis 2, God shapes Adam and gives him the breath of life. He becomes a living soul. And God also gives Adam a garden, and it has everything he possibly needs. It has, you know, rivers, fruit trees, animals, and most importantly, God himself, made for fellowship with God. Well, there's work to do, and Adam's alone, and he feels it. So God also gives Adam a beautiful counterpart named Eve. And she causes Adam to say, at last, here is one just like me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's a perfect world. It's a perfect world. But we don't live in that perfect world anymore, do we? Our world 
is very much like that broken globe. It's been twisted too far, it's broken, and we can't put it back together again. Relationships break, our sexuality breaks, we're slowly breaking the earth. Our hearts break, nations break, they go to war, our health breaks, our politics breaks, and all the glue, tape, positive thinking, and good programs just can't put it all back together again. So we're in a sermon series on our new vision and new mission as a church. So today, I want to explore the heart of our new mission. We can't say everything in one message. What we're going to focus on today is the heart of that vision, which is about people going from broken to whole in Jesus Christ. Here's our vision. We've been talking about it uh, in our congregational meetings. Our vision as we look forward by God's grace is to be a thriving family in the city where the broken from all nations are made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus. That's our vision. The title of the message today is The Story of Our World. It's kind of a big picture message. The story of our world from whole to broken to whole again. Is it possible? You look at all the brokenness within you and around you. Is it possible? And we go from broken to whole again. I want to explore a couple of questions today. One is, how did we get here? How did we get to be so broken? How did our world get to be so broken? And is there any hope for us? And if there is, what is it? So our text today is Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read just the first 10 verses, but I'll be making references to other verses in chapter 3 and into chapter 2. But follow along as I read, uh, as the words are up on screen. This is the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. I want us to look at several things uh, from this passage of Scripture today as we think about broken, made whole. Is it possible Um, And you'll find an outline on uh, the back of your bulletin on the sermon notes page if you want to follow along and jot any notes. 
The first thing I want us to think about is the rejection of God's goodness. The rejection of God's goodness. That is what is unfolding in this passage. The serpent shows up, and he's crafty. He's good at what he does. In other words, he's good at the art of seduction. He is a master at the art of seduction. And this means that the serpent is much smarter and much more skillful than you are, than I am. In a game of wits with the devil, you're going to go down every time. Don't kid yourself. He's smooth. He's convincing. He's even a little hip. Notice his craftiness. What does he say? His opening words. Did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, here's what God actually did say in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That's remarkably clear. Not confusing at all. But I want you to notice what the the serpent does. First, he begins to objectify God. He, He talks about God as if God were not there. He's just a thing. He's he's out there somewhere. So you see it in the fact that serpent, the serpent and Eve, they they have this kind of a theological bull session about God, but no one actually talks to God. They talk about God, but not to God. And then the serpent begins to sow seeds of mistrust with this simple question, did God really say? Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Can you hear it in his voice? What's he implying? Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's saying, what kind of God is that? That's not a good God. That's a cosmic killjoy. That's a cosmic prude. I mean, he's holding something good back from you. What kind of God is that? You see how this all begins to unravel with a simple little question. Did God really say? Did God really say? Everything hangs on that one question. With it, the serpent begins to chip away at the rock of God's goodness. It's the central question behind the story of Genesis, behind the story of our world, behind the story of your life, my life, and every life. Will I trust God, or will I turn away from God? For the follower of Christ, this is really the taproot of every broken place and every disorder of the human soul. Can I trust God? Can I take God at his word? For example, in the Bible, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Can I trust that? Or do I have to go looking for my own bread to satisfy all my emotional and spiritual hungers? The Bible says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares For you, can I trust that? 
Or do I need to find another place to bring my cares and my anxieties? The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do I trust that? Or do I have to work harder to get my sins cleansed before a holy God? Do I have to do something more, something better, in order to have his approval upon my life? For most of us, it's not always an easy question. We have doubts. We've been told, our world tells us, you have to rely on yourself. People will not be there for you. You are alone. Trust leads to betrayal. You trust somebody, sooner or later, they're going to hurt you. So don't let that happen. Keep your heart closed. Keep your heart protected. Now, some of our doubts come from deep wounds that are very real. Abuse, abandonment, rejection, betrayal, disappointment. And like arrows, those actions have pierced our hearts with sorrow, hurt, pain, fear. So what do we do? We numb our hearts. We find some things to numb our hearts we don't trust. Then on top of that, God God seems to act in ways that we don't understand. You with me on that? God does some things we just don't understand. We want God, we think it's his job to fix our problems and make our lives smoother, easier. But then God says things like this. He says, consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. How many are having a lot of success with that? (laughs) You know, pure joy. You're like, what? What did you say, God? You want to give me trials of various kinds. Not just one, but various kinds. And you want me to count it as joy? So, you know, doubt is part of the spiritual journey. But will the doubt drive us toward God? And his goodness, you know, sometimes arguing with him, sometimes lamenting, crying out to him, or will it drive us away from God? Will I trust God? Or will I believe the biggest lies in the universe, which say, you are alone, you must make it on your own, you must grab the fruit for yourself, for it will never be yours. Is God good? That is the question that haunts many people for most of their lives. Things go terribly wrong, tragically painful at some point in every life. And maybe that's happened in your life. And maybe you find yourself concluding that God isn't good. You you think he's out to get you, to, to make your life miserable. And maybe as your frustration and anger escalate, you raise your eyes or your fists to heaven and you let loose a violent string of curses against God. You tell God you hate him. You tell him you want him to leave you alone. You tell him things that you wouldn't want to repeat in church. You become firmly convinced that God is the kind of God who would intentionally do things just to make you frustrated or just to make you miserable. Here's the thing. You can fear that kind of God, but you can never trust him. 
You can fear that kind of God, but you can never trust him. Are you stuck there? You can fear that kind of God, but you can never trust him. Eve is like most of us. She trusts God, sort of. She trusts God, sort of. I mean, the world around her is full of evidence of God's goodness. But Eve, she's already starting to distort the truth of God's goodness. She begins by answering the serpent. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But remember, God had actually said, these were his opening words to them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. He goes on to talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he says you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Uh, The emphasis is not on restriction. The emphasis is on freedom and goodness, that God made the human race for freedom in his presence, in his creation, in his goodness. But in verse 3, Eve misses the point again with her embellishment that God had said about that tree, the, the knowledge of good and evil that you must not touch it. Well, God never said that. She added that. And in so doing, she distorts the goodness of God. So the serpent, this is what he does. Did it in her life, did it in every life since. He keeps chipping away at the rock of God's goodness. Whispering into Eve's ear, did God really say that? What kind of God is that? You can't trust that kind of God. You have to look out for yourself. You have to grab that fruit because no one will do it for you. Look at it hanging there. It's really something. It's yours for the taking. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It stood right smack dab in the middle of that garden that God created, and it was a profound symbol. It was a profound symbol about the right to determine what is good and evil. That's God's role. The right to determine what is good and evil. The right to form the standards of right and wrong. And even the right to dethrone God and take his place. So the serpent is really whispering, you can do that. You can do that. You'll never get what you want in life unless you look out for yourself. Don't hold back. Finally, all of this starts to make sense to Eve. So she buys the lie. She thinks, I am on my own. I can't trust God. I have to look out for myself. I I need to exchange roles with God. I want you to notice the rapid succession of verbs from that point on. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. Boom, 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 boom. Everything starts to unravel, and and it unravels very quickly. Everything starts to break apart, and it breaks apart so quickly. Sin usually looks good. It usually looks good to us. Taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, having the right to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, that sounds like a good option. That sounds like something we want. But there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay for playing God. And it's laid out in verses 7 and 8. As the serpent promised, Adam and Eve's eyes were open, but 
It wasn't what they had bargained for. They, they didn't like what they see. Their eyes were open to their own nakedness. And with the nakedness came shame. Shame is that feeling where we know we've missed the mark, that, that we just don't measure up, that we're defective, that we're inadequate. So Adam and Eve try to make clothes out of fig leaves in a pathetic attempt to cover themselves. And then they run away and hide from God. The amazing thing in all of this is that no one takes any responsibility for any of this. Uh, Everyone evades and excuses and blames. First look at Adam. Where is Adam in this story? He just kind of went off the grid. Is he wandering around the garden totally oblivious to this scene? Well, probably not. Because all of the pronouns in verses 2 through 5 are in the plural. The we and all of those you pronouns, they're all plural. It's, It's as if it's saying you all or you both, plural. So it's addressed to both of them. And verse 6 says that he was with her. So after Eve ate the fruit, Adam, you know, he was right there. He's watching his wife. Just picture this. He's watching his wife have this friendly bull session with Satan, and he keeps his mouth shut. He's he's a nice guy. He's a sensitive guy, right? He never interrupts his wife and says, "Um, Honey, I really don't think we should be talking to the devil. Nor does he say, "Uh, um, Evie Poo, uh, I don't mean to correct, but actually that's not quite what God said. Human history, humanity is going down the cosmic toilet, and Adam stands to the side and looks the other way. Why didn't he do something? Why didn't he say something? Well, when we get to the end of the scene, in verse 10, Adam tells us that the driving force, the motivating force for him behind this scene is, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was naked. That's it. This is why we hide. We're afraid. Fear dominates us, controls us, makes us run and hide, makes us pretend. We're afraid of conflict. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of getting it wrong. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid because we're naked and ashamed. Shame says, you don't have what it takes. You'll get in the battle and you'll lose. So don't even go there. You'll fail. So stick with stuff you know. Stick with what you can do just to get by. You don't have what it takes. If we examine Adam's bad example, you know, we, we kind of find out what we're supposed to do uh, in terms of the opposite of that. In terms of Genesis 3, we're supposed to stand between the serpent and our family, our people. How do you do that? Well, First and foremost, you must become a person of prayer. This is what God is driving deep into my own life. I must become a man of prayer. So, for example, a married man, he's got to cry out to God from the depths of his weakness, the depths of his brokenness. He's got to say, Abba, Father, help me. 
my, my family, my marriage is under attack. I need you. I'm trying to stand between the serpent and my family, but this great battle is raging, and you've called me to stand up and speak and be there, but I'm terrified, and frankly, I want to run away. I have no idea how to stand or what to say. Father, teach me. Help me. Guide me. Lead me. Pour your strength and your wisdom and your power into this weak and broken vessel. And then he must arise and go forth as a man, a broken, wounded, sinful man who has nevertheless been touched by God himself, forgiven, filled, inflamed, empowered with the presence of Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who defeats the serpent. I need him. I need him. Oh, you will make mistakes. Don't make it your goal not to make any mistakes. You'll never hit that goal. You will make mistakes, lots of them, but you won't have to be another Adam, looking the other way, uninvolved, disengaged, doing your own thing. So what does Adam do instead when this is all over? He blames God, and he blames Eve. I mean, he willingly participated in the whole mess. He was right there. He did nothing. And all he can say is, well, you know, God, it's really the woman that you gave to me. I mean, you gave me that woman. It's your fault. And by the way, hers too. It's not me. You ever seen that in human relationships? It's as old as the garden. He doesn't own any of it. He just gets defensive. Eve isn't much better. When God turns to her later in chapter 3, she says, this is what she says in effect, I'm just a poor little damsel in distress, and the big bad serpent, he tricked me. He tricked me. My worthless husband, he just checked out. I can never rely on him to be the spiritual leader of our home or for anything else that really matters. Now, technically, that's all partially true. But the serpent deceived her because she was already distorting the truth of God's goodness. She did that all by herself. She invited the devil in for a nice chat. She wanted that forbidden fruit. So Eve is like all of us. We're surrounded by beauty, by the goodness of God, God's amazing provision. But the one thing she really wants, that that tree right in the middle of the garden, that is denied her. I want you to think about that. That one thing that we think we really need, a date. A husband who really listens to me like my girlfriends or like Dr. Phil. Parents who love me and act cool. A dream home. A sexual fling with the airbrushed woman. The perfect body, straight A's, the best job, the star athlete. God denies us. Neither Adam nor Eve take responsibility for what they did, their rebellion against God and his goodness. Both of them are locked into blame games, excuses, defensiveness. In marriage counseling, this is called a cycle of negativity. And once that cycle gets revved up in a relationship, any it could be marriage or any relationship, 
No one wants to admit or accept responsibility. And this is the beginning of the world's terrible brokenness. The brokenness that shows up in every life and in every corner of the world. It's a mess. We're a mess. The world's a mess. In the midst of God's good creation, there's this pattern that begins. It's a, it's a downward spiral of brokenness. And it looks like this. It begins with seeds of mistrust toward God and a distortion of his character, so that the God who is for us is seen as the God who is against us. This leads to an acceptance of this great cosmic lie. You are on your own. You are on your own. With this mentality, you know how it goes. Anything that looks good to us, we go for it. We have a man who checks out, and we have a woman who acts like a victim. No one takes responsibility. Instead, they both slip into blame, evasion, denial. There's this anxious and hurried flight from God that results in the breakdown of marriage, friendship, relationships, community, truth. We see the beginning of shame. You know, our sin brings shame. And we see the need to cover it up, all an attempt to prove that we're not naked, we're not defective, we're we're really okay. And so I want to invite you today, can you see yourself, not just Adam or Eve, but can you see yourself, your own brokenness in this downward spiral? The New Testament has a name for this cycle of brokenness. It's called the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Can we break out of that? Can we get back to the garden? And if we can, how? How do we get back to the garden? Because our mistrust and our brokenness have grown so deep. Our shame and blame have become so intense. It's just our default. Is there any hope for us? Well, the Bible says, yes, there is. There is solid hope, strong hope, and it's called the gospel of God. It's the good news that comes from God about a savior and a deliverer and a healer of whom we sang this morning. The New Testament says there's another law that has entered the cosmos, that has broken into our universe, and it's called the law of the spirit of life. Romans 8. 1 and 2 puts it like this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Did you hear that amazing good news? There's another law available to you. It doesn't have to be the law of sin and death, the law of the Spirit of life. It's a law that leads to forgiveness to freedom, to wholeness. And the gospel, the good news, it's it's the story, it's God's story of how God won our forgiveness, how God won our freedom back and makes us whole again through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died because you and I, let's be honest, we were locked in a hopeless downward spiral called the law of sin and death. That's what we knew how to do, and that's it. 
The spiral started in the garden. It's been repeated for thousands of years in every life. It leaves us broken beyond words in our personal lives, in our relationships, in all that we touch. And only God could mend our brokenness. We can't fix our own brokenness. Christ came and died for us because we were trapped in this cycle of sin. We were shackled. We were in the chains of death. And we were broken beyond any repair that we could do. But Christ came. Jesus came as a warrior to fight for you better than Superman or Spider-Man or Batman or Jack Bauer or whoever to set you free from the law of sin and death, to make you alive, to make you whole. He lived and died and rose again so that you could call out to him, Lord Jesus, I need you. You're the one. The only one. I believe that you are the one who can set me free from the law of sin and death. I believe that you took my sin upon your shoulders and carried it to that cross. I believe that your death brought about the death of death. The spirit of life reigns. I believe that you can take me from condemned to forgiven, from death to life, from broken to whole. Jesus, I need you. I trust you. So what does that mean? It means so many things. It means I can trust God because God is showing that he's really for me. He's not against me. He sent me Jesus. It means that God's heart toward me is always good and kind and compassionate. I can rest in his fatherly heart of goodness toward me. It means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the law of sin and death, it's still there. It's still at work. But it isn't the truest thing about you anymore. It's not the last word on you anymore. It it means I can be content with what I have. Uh, I don't need to always crave more or better or different. You know, there's just that one thing over there can say God is good to me. It means I don't need to check out and I don't need to act like a victim. It means I don't need to evade responsibilities or blame other people. I I can stand before God and say, Father, the law of sin and death, it just gets a hold of me. It drags me down. It breaks me. I need help. Forgive me. Make me whole again. Make the law of the spirit of life operational in me. It means I don't have to hide behind my shame. I don't have to create some kind of fig leaves to cover my nakedness because the Bible tells me that, hey, if I'm a follower of Jesus, you know what? I'm already covered. I'm already covered. I'm already clothed with this perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's no fault in that. It means I can give myself away to others in love and service without fear, without resentment, ministering to the poor, the lost, the least, the last, the broken, because that's what God did for me. That's what God did for me, and he will take care of me. It means I can go from broken to whole in Jesus Christ. You can go from broken to whole in Jesus. That's why he came. 
But when you come to Christ and you place your faith in him, there's this miraculous renewal that the Holy Spirit does in your person. And you're no longer just in the grip of that law of sin and death. Christ has forgiven your sin. Christ has set you free. Live your freedom. Celebrate your freedom. Worship the one who has set you free. And share that freedom. It's a broken world all around us. And we we go as broken people who know what it means to be forgiven, to be set free, and to be in that process of healing up and, and, and moving from broken to whole because of what Jesus does. So share that freedom. Everybody you know needs that message, that good news. So be a signpost. God wants you to be a signpost of his mercy, his forgiveness, the hope, the purpose, the wholeness that we find in Jesus in the midst of this very sad and broken world. I just want you to remember as you go forth from here that freely you have received, freely give. That's the call on my life and your life and our life as a church. Freely you have received, freely give. Amen.